Welcome, welcome to Live Courageously, the podcast show number nine of 2022. Wow, time flies. I can't believe this is already my ninth podcast show of this year. I created the podcast show to share the stories of some amazing, courageous friends I'm honored to know and have in my life. And I chose the title, Live Courageously, because that's been the conscious theme of my life for the last two years since the beginning of the pandemic. And I would say, unconsciously, it's been the theme of my life for most of my life. So if you haven't seen the previous eight podcasts with some amazing friends, with some very powerful stories of overcoming all odds to live their best life, you can watch them on my uh, Live Courageously YouTube channel and at uh, Duff, Square Film on, uh, Duff Square Film, excuse me, on Rumble. I recommend you check them out, binge watch them if you like. It's better than Netflix and you'll get a large, large dose of courage. This show is about fear over fate or faith over fear. And fear is just a reaction, but courage is a choice. And I suggest you need to consciously choose courage to get through life and deal with what life may throw at you. Uh, last night, I um, saw a movie called uh, Father Stew, which is based on a true story of a, a boxer who life threw a whole lot of challenges at him. And yet somehow he found the courage to uh, persevere and to make a difference in his family and in the community and his life. And it's um, a movie well worth checking out because it kind of echoes and amplifies this message of live courageously. So I encourage you to adopt a spirit of courage in the face of any and all fears that you may face uh, going forward in life. So today, let me introduce you to my guest and my friend Bob Hammer, who has lived a very, very courageous life. Bob is a veteran undercover FBI agent with 26 years of street experience. He worked organized crime, gangs, terrorism, and child exploitation. Although he prides himself on a career of successful undercover assignments, he also served as a case agent or co-case agent on some of the most significant matters investigated by the Los Angeles office of the FBI, the LA Mafia family case, the uh, Eddie Nash case of Laurel Canyon murders, John Holmes, Boogie Nights, and Wonderland fame, and the July 4th shooting at the El Al ticket counter at LAX. Bob's received numerous awards throughout his career, including the FBI's Director's Award for Distinguished Service and five United States Attorney Awards for Distinguished Service. In undercover assignments lasting anywhere from several days to more than three years, he successfully posed as a drug dealer, contract killer, a fence, a pedophile, a degenerate gambler, an international weapons dealer, and white collar criminal. Uh, while posing as a criminal, he earned nearly $1 million in income provided by the targets of federal investigations. Bob worked undercover against such diverse groups as the La Costa, Nos Costa Nostra, the Sicilian, Mexican, and Russian mafias, Asian organized crime groups, and Los Angeles-based street gangs. His successful infiltration of NAMBLA, which is the North American Man-Boy Love Association, resulted in the arrest of eight members of what one defendant called the organization's inner circle. Bob's undercover activities in the LA Mafia family case has been detailed in the book, The Animal in Hollywood. He once purchased seven kilograms of cocaine with a pair of boxing gloves and was the undercover agent in the first conviction ever obtained under the female circum. Cision Act of 1995. He successfully infiltrated a group of race fixers who frequent sent uh, Anita and Hollywood Park and even managed to hit the pick six twice. Operation Smoke and Dragon resulted in the indictment of 87 individuals who were trafficking in surface-to-air missiles, virtually undetectable counterfeit U.S. currency drugs and counterfeit goods. And that's just his experience in the FBI. And then his life goes on because this is uh, somebody who's lived a, a very full life. Bob is also a member of the Writers Guild of America, the Writers Guild of Canada. He has television writing credits for Sue Thomas, FBI, and The Inside. He's worked as a technical advisor for the series The Inside and Angela's Eyes, and he's consulted for Law and Order, SU, SVU, and Sleeper Cell. He's also appeared on Oprah and Hannity to discuss his undercover role at the NAMBLA, in the NAMBLA investigation. And he's appeared on Inside North Korea's Dynasty and National Geographic Inside North Korea to discuss his undercover role in Operation Smoke and Dragon. 
and it keeps going. I mean, it, it, he has an amazing amount of accomplishments. This is a, a very accomplished person. He's the author of three award-winning books, The Last Undercover, The True Story of an FBI Agent's Dangerous Dance with Evil, a novel, Enemies Amongst Us, and a second novel, Targets Down. Bob has also released three novellas, Detour to Justice, Expendable for the Cause, and Blood in the Desert. He's collaborated with New York Times bestseller author Oliver North to write American Heroes on the Home Front and Counterfeit Lies. Bob is a Marine Corps veteran. He's married and has two children. So after that um, amazing uh, short history, because I know it's a lot longer and, and it's, you know, it's just an amazing amount of conference. Let's welcome uh, a friend and an amazing, courageous person to the show. Welcome, Bob Hammer. Hey, thanks, John, for having me. I appreciate it. Hey, thank you. Thank you for uh, being part of this and, and being willing to share your experiences in life and your story with the uh, audience. Um, you know, Bob, I usually like starting out the show with two questions and then we'll get into your your life. And I'll ask you questions to take you on the journey from when you started. My first two questions usually are, how did we meet, if you remember? And sometimes I do and sometimes I don't remember. But um, uh, if you do, I, I, and then the second part is, what does live courageously mean in your life? So those are the two questions to kick off the show if um, we start there. Well, we, we first met through a group of, of people in, in Hollywood that uh, shared like-minded values. And then I, I know that we've, we've talked at, at different luncheons and, and opportunities where we've had to socialize. And I appreciate even one time I came, I was in L.A. speaking. And you came to hear me speak and you it was nice to have a smiling face because I think uh, there were a few enemies in the crowd there that weren't too happy with what I had to say. So I appreciate that. Well, I, I remember that. Well, it was a very strange crowd. And you and you were sharing your your story from your book, The Last on the Cover, as well as other things. And that's when I picked up a copy of the book from you, The Last on the Cover. Um, which shares all those journeys. Yeah, so that was a funny crowd. I must admit, a crowd that I didn't want to ever experience again. But um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you did very well in that. Um, yeah, I, thought so they, that I thought they were all my friends before we got started. And then I realized about halfway through that some of them weren't. So Yeah, there was, it, there was some uh, strange folks. Let's put it that way. Um, but then the second part is, you know, you've lived, in my opinion, obviously, and probably in your own, you've had a very uh, long, courageous life in what you've done. So what, is the, what does living courageously mean to you? Um, how do you see that in life? Well, I think certainly living without fear, we've, we've all faced different challenges. And regardless of whether you've worked uh, in front of a camera in Hollywood, whether you've been an undercover agent, whether you're just a a husband or wife or father and mother that, that we all have struggles and, and to live without fear. Uh, I actually, uh, I come from a strong faith background and uh, I, I, I always laugh that I'm sure there's some theologian that would say that this verse was only met. Uh, it wasn't meant for me, but it means something to me. And it was, it said, the Lord himself will go before you and be with you. He will neither, neither leave you nor forsake you. Do not be discouraged. Do not be afraid. And I kind of lived that way. I knew that I was in the FBI for a reason. And uh, I mean, we can get into it later, but it, it literally was a direct answer to prayer. And I think through some of my tougher assignments, uh, I just kind of agreed, you know what? I'm, I'm here for a reason. And I, I always like to laugh that uh, had I... When I came home at night, my wife was happy. But had I been killed, I had a pretty good life insurance policy. So she was she was covered either way. Well, you know, you you said that that, that uh, quote um, you live by, and that's kind of what you got you through. But you know, let's start at the beginning. Where, where did you grow up? And the first thing, obviously, you did was you became a U.S. Marine. And what age was that? And why did you choose that? Because that's a a branch that takes courage to be a part of and to be a, a Marine. So tell me a little bit about, tell us a little bit about that story. Yeah, I, I grew up in the Midwest. Uh, I actually grew up in an Air Force community, not that my father, my father had been a veteran of World War Ats. But I was always drawn more toward, I guess, toward the infantry than I was to, to the air. 
And it was very interesting when, when I graduated from high school, one of my friends and I drove to Washington, D.C., and we went to Arlington Cemetery. And I saw a, this was during the height of the Vietnam War, and there was a Marine Corps major that had been killed in Vietnam and was, they were having the processional and, and watching all of these men in their dress blue uniforms and watching the, the pomp and the circumstance of, of this, uh, this funeral, it really got me. And I decided that uh, if, I, if I were going into the military, I was going to go in as a Marine. So I ended up applying to the Marine Corps at that time. Well, they still do, but the Marine Corps had a, a program called PLC, the platoon leaders class. And the recruiter explained to me that if I, if I went into this program, uh, I could finish college, go to officer candidate school during the summer. And then once I got out of the Marine Corps, uh, I mean, once I got out of college then I would be commissioned as an officer in the Marine Corps. And uh, it is like, yeah, this is what I want to do. I, I got to admit, there's a lot of guilt on my part because I could have gone to Vietnam. I could have enlisted. I could have gone in uh, with some of my friends, people I knew in high school that I uh, had had gone in just right directly out of high school. I waited until I got out of college. By the time I was commissioned, the Marine Corps had essentially pulled out of Vietnam and the the officer candidate selection officer, the OSO, came to me and he said, hey, have you ever thought about law school? Because we need lawyers. We're 110 lawyers short right now in the Marine Corps. And you're a political science major. Have you ever thought about going to law school? And I said, yeah, I have thought about going to law school. Uh, and besides, what do you do with a political science major? Uh, so <laughs> I, uh, I actually ended up going to law school. Uh, the Marine Corps didn't bother me until I got out of law school. And then I spent four years on active duty in the Marine Corps as a judge advocate. So it was, it, I always like to say that the Marine Corps did two things for me. They got my wisdom teeth pulled and they taught me how much I hated being a lawyer. Uh, <laughs> I had roughly 150 trials. Uh, I mean, a lot of guilty pleas, but I was in court a lot and had everything from unauthorized absence to murder. And what I learned in the Marine Corps was that in the courtroom, it was never a whodunit. And I'm old enough to have grown up in the Perry Mason generation where I literally assumed that during the trial, the innocent party, uh, the guilty party came rushing through the back door and going, wait a minute, I did it, I did it. And it never came down to that. I mean, literally every case in which I was involved in the Marine Corps, they were all guilty. It was just a matter of whether you could prove the guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And it was never a whodunit. It was always, is the search legal? Is the confession admissible? And there were always procedural issues. And again, I was kind of spoiled by Hollywood thinking that the courtroom was where the excitement was. And for me, that just wasn't exciting at all. And so I was looking for, I was looking for something a lot more exciting than the courtroom. I hear you. Well, you know, my first experience, um, that's kind of, kind of changed my life in a way and, and helped me pivot in a different direction was when I line produced some training videos for the U.S. Marine Corps, uh, uh, I don't know how many years ago, 15 years ago. And we went down to Pendleton and there was, um, they had an educators workshop that the Marine Corps put on. We went out to OCS in summer and winter and we filmed uh, the Marine Corps training programs and the OCS that you participated in. And at that point, I had never had any up close uh, experience with the military. My dad was in the army, uh, fought in the Philippines, but he died when I was four years old. So I didn't get to really know that and know that experience. But being around those young Marines on Pendleton and, and uh, Quantico, it just opened up a door because I, I just came across some of the best people I'd ever met in my life. And it just made me come back and go, what can I do in Hollywood with my experience to help veterans in the film industry? And that kind of pivoted me into that, uh, being involved and being pro-veteran support and doing stuff like that. So the Marine Corps gave me that kickoff, and uh, I'm glad that it did. But yeah, uh, I, go ahead. No, I, I, I laugh because we always say that the Marines didn't consider me a Marine and the lawyers didn't consider me a lawyer. But I really, I, I really do cherish my 
the fact that I can say I'm a U.S. Marine. And uh, probably, I mean, I wasn't much of a Marine. And my FBI career was much more exciting than anything in the Marine Corps. But I am extremely proud to say that, that I'm a U.S. Marine and that I that I had spent four years on active duty because uh, and, and I think it's it's probably opened more doors for me than saying I'm an FBI agent. So it's uh, it was a great decision on my part. Well, it's a great organization and obviously it's highly respected. And, you know, every uh, Marine that I've met at the American Legion that I belong to post 43 and all the Marines I met over time, I'm just you know, honored to know them because it, it just brings together not everybody, of course, but some of the best. And, and, and it goes throughout their whole life, you know, and, and they be a lot of them go into service of another type, just like you did. So you came out of the Marines and obviously being a lawyer wasn't <laughs> the attraction that it was. But from there, um, you did, made a decision to join the FBI. What made that decision for you? Why the FBI? I remember when I was a kid, I watched the FBI show on TV and I wanted to be an FBI agent as a kid. Of course, I dropped out of high school and I wasn't able to go down that path. But um, what was it that got you to kind of um, want to go in that direction? Well, I, I, you're, you're right. I, I mean, again, Hollywood had a huge influence and I used to watch the FBI and Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. and all of that. So there was in the back of my mind, there was always that interest in, in the FBI. I knew at the time that the FBI was extremely interested in lawyers and accountants. So here I had a law degree. Uh, I had applied to both the CIA and the FBI, and I really thought I was going to get into the CIA. It, it, it was fascinating. Uh, I, the L.A. Times, in the sports section of the L.A. Times, there was an ad that the CIA was looking for case officers. And at first, I thought this was a joke because I figured the CIA went out to Harvard and Yale and some guy in a trench coat came up to you and said, hey, buddy, you know, you want to be a spy? And I, I answered the ad and went down. I was stationed at Camp Pendleton at the time, which is outside of San Diego went down to the federal building in San Diego, went into this relatively small room with only two pieces of furniture, two chairs. That was the only furniture in the room. And I, I walked into the room, nobody was there. I sat down, all of a sudden this guy walks in and he's got a scar from ear to ear. And I am thinking, this is so exciting. This is cool. I don't know. This is the kind of excitement I'm not finding in the courtroom. And this guy has my attention. And we, to this day, I couldn't tell you what that guy looked like other than that scar. It may have been a fake scar. He may have got hung up in a clothesline playing flag football when he was eight years old. But, you know, this guy had my attention. And we had this initial interview. It went well enough that... The next thing I know, I get plain bond piece of stationery to my home address saying that you've been selected for the next round of, of interviews. Hmm. And this was well before 9-11. So I was instructed to not tell anyone what I was doing, uh, pay cash for everything, fly under an assumed name and go back to Washington, D.C. and meet with some people. So I... Wow. I, I didn't tell my, I just told my wife I was going back to, to DC. I was in the Marine Corps. So she just figured it was something with the Marine Corps. I told the Marine Corps I was taking a couple of days to leave. I flew back to DC, met with some people, took an awful lot of tests. I mean, it was geography tests, general aptitude tests, language aptitude tests. I was taking all these tests and it, I was doing fairly well. And hmm. at the end of the day, they, kind of gave me a raw, raw speech and said, uh, you may hear from us again. So I head back to De or Camp Pendleton. I'm back in the courtroom, get another letter, plain bond stationary, come back for the second round of interviews. Again, pay cash, fly under assumed name, don't tell anybody. I head back for the second day. Uh, I'm going through more testing. At that time, the guy said, you're doing well. You can tell your wife, but nobody else what you're doing. So I came back and I, I said, Debbie, 
I think we're going to be spies. I have to tell you what I'm doing. How, how old were you at the time? Uh, I was uh, 28, 29. Okay, yeah. so this was yeah. pretty exciting stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, this was this was James Bond stuff, That's right? You know? So, uh, and then I got a third letter. So I went back a third time. Now, uh, this is the one that hurts. I go back the third time. And I'm, I've taken a psychological exam. And they grade you from a zero to a 10. And I'm sure if you have psychologists that are watching this, they can tell you exactly what that test is. But they score you from a zero to a 10. And a 10 has to be constantly surrounded by people. And a zero could live the rest of his life on a deserted island and be perfectly content. I skewed my answers a little bit because I assumed they were looking for some guy that they dropped behind enemy lines. He stayed there for three months. Then he killed the third world dictator and they <laughs> extricated him by a helicopter. A, a little Hollywood version. Yeah. Yeah. Again, you know, Hollywood has had a huge impact on my life. Sure. So then I, I, I go in, the psychologist looks at me and he shakes his head and he says, I've never seen a zero personality. And so my wife, reminds me that I apparently the only person ever declared a zero personality by the federal government. Well, it turns out that they didn't like lawyers and they didn't like zero personalities. And I didn't get, I got rejected by the CIA and it was, wow. boy, you talk about the, the bubble bursting and the air going out of your balloon. I had applied to the FBI. The FBI had said, uh, I, I took the, the written exam, I took the oral exam, I did very well. I was on the list to be hired and they had a hiring freeze. So they wow. announced that they were having a one year hiring freeze in the FBI. Uh, I was getting out of the Marine Corps. I wasn't allowed to stay in uh, because I had a reserve commission. So my four years were coming up. I didn't want to remain a lawyer if I did stay in, I had to remain a lawyer. They wouldn't allow me to change my military occupational specialty. So I'm getting out. Now, the CIA has rejected me. The FBI is on a one-year hiring freeze. I applied for a job in Los Angeles. I was accepted for that job. I still, to this day, can't tell you what the job was. I just kind of turned on my zero personality in the interview, and the guy hired me. It's... <laughs> It's a Monday night, Friday, I am getting out of the Marine Corps. Friday is my last day of active duty. And I, I was discouraged. And Were that night I prayed. I'm sorry? Were you at Quantico or Pendleton? I was at Pendleton. I was at Camp Pendleton. Yeah. Uh -huh. So I that night I just prayed. And I literally, it was just a conversation with God. I said, you know, we tied, you're going to get more money if I take this job up in LA, but I would prefer that to get the job with the FBI or the CIA. John, the very next morning, the phone rings and it's the FBI. And they said, someone just dropped out of our September class. Can you be back to Quantico in 30 days uh, and become an FBI agent? And Clearly an answer to prayer. Wow. Uh, and they didn't know that I was getting out on Friday. So sure. my, it, it was an answer. And then throughout my career, when I was facing some pretty tough times, I thought, you know what? God wanted me in this spot for a reason. And I'm in the FBI for a reason. So I never looked back. Once I, once I got involved in the FBI, I never looked back. It, I knew that was where I was supposed to be. And fortunately, and we'll get into a little later, but I gravitated to undercover work and that's, that's where I found my niche. And, yeah. And we'll that. definitely got to get into that. I wonder, um, it, you kind of, your, what you just said about the prayer and it happening kind of echoes and it's kind of interesting. I watched it last night, the movie Father Stew. I don't know if you have had a chance to see it, but if you do, uh, I'd love to see what you think about it, but it's the same thing. It was just like, uh, he found his calling. He, you know, it unexpected, all, all those kind of things. And he prayed and the prayer was answered, but not in the way he expected. And yet it took him on a journey that was his purpose and mission in life. So kind of echoes what you're saying with, you know, you had that prayer and then the next day 
you're being asked to come down to the FBI, which is where you wanted to be. So as, as, that's pretty amazing. So you go, you get down to the FBI and, and how does that journey start for you? And how do you get to the point where you get to do the stuff you really loved and, and go undercover? Tell us a little so, bit about the journey. Yeah. So now we go back to Quantico, which is where they're, the, the academy is the FBI Academy. Now I'd already spent 12 weeks of officer candidate school there, six months of the Marine Corps basic school. So I'm pretty familiar with, with uh, Quantico and, and, and love the area. Uh, and, you know, I can share this in typical government fashion. They, they said, you're never giving back to San Diego. So we had a home in San Diego uh, and I ended up we sold the home in San Diego because we were told by the FBI, you'll never return to San Diego. Um, sell the home in San Diego. I, uh, Debbie moves in with kind of shares time between her parents and my parents. We, we have a little girl at that time, our, our first child, our daughter. And, and I go, I head back to Quantico and it, kind of laughing. Um, when I was in the Marine Corps, when we were doing certain training assignments they would say you know the fbi did this and they're so much smarter than you guys they always you know they always outshine you on this particular obstacle and then when i'm in the fbi academy essentially going through the same thing it's like you know the marines do this and they always are better than <laughs> you fbi agents <laughs> it's like wait a minute i i heard this story the last time i was here and it was a different answer but huh. uh so then we're, I'm back at Quantico and about halfway through, lo and behold, the government changes their transfer policy and I get orders back to San Diego. But it was, it was while at the academy that I, I found, uh, it, I found that it was uh, uh, exciting. I, I learned a lot. Uh, I knew that I was going to be able to apply what I knew from law school, the experiences that I had in, in the Marine Corps as a prosecutor and as a defense counsel so that I, I could think I, I could I could understand the elements of the offense. I could understand what was necessary. And those those four years in the Marine Corps prepared me to be a much better FBI agent because I knew how to put a case together and I knew how to think like a defense counsel. So it was. Mm. I was able to sort of see the holes in our investigation and say, look, if this were, if I were defending this guy, this is what I would, this is the, what I would bring up to try to raise a reasonable doubt. So we could, uh, we could shore up those holes in the, in the investigation and it, and it paid off. So when you get in, you go through the training, you get um, accepted and become an FBI agent. Did they try and um, direct you towards uh, law, being a lawyer and being legal? Or how did you pivot out of that into being undercover? How did that process? No. Yeah, no, every every agent is a, is, is a street agent first. I mean, you go out and you investigate crimes. They may, depending on what squad you're assigned to and in what division, uh, it's going to vary. But I, I was very fortunate. I came back to San Diego. At that time, San Diego had a, a general criminal squad. So within just weeks of, re of reporting to San Diego, I captured a bank robber running out of a bank. We were working kidnappings, extortions. Uh, we were working some, some very interesting cases. And then we started working an art theft ring. And, and that's that was sort of my first entree into undercover work. But uh, I, I had to... I had tremendous training agents that that took the time to explain the real world, not not the world of the FBI Academy, not the training world, but just like I'm sure all of your viewers, it's the same thing. You you went to school to learn one thing, and then once you got into the real world, you recognize that it's not the same thing as it was in the hallowed halls of education. Uh, things are a lot different in the real world, and that's that's where I began to understand this is this is what uh, being an FBI agent is all about. But tell, tell me about, Bob, tell me about your first time going undercover. Was there any fear on your part, any uh, trepidation? Because here, you know, you have to 
you have to you have to act. You have to act a character that you're not, right? And that's you didn't get trained that in the Marine Corps, and you didn't get trained that necessarily as a lawyer, maybe a little bit, but you know, you had to take on a character's identity to be undercover. So what what did that feel like the first time for you? Yeah, it, it, it's a little bit different now because now the, the FBI has a, a pretty sophisticated training program for, for undercover agents, a, a certification process that you have to go through. And they want you to think it's like SEAL training, or BUDS training in, in the Navy SEALs or maybe Marine Corps Officer Candidate School. It's not it's not that physically demanding, but it's emotionally and psychologically stressful. The, the, the training school is two weeks. The certification school, about half of those that apply to the program that get accepted into the school, only about half of them get through the school and are certified. Uh, when I went through, it was, it was a lot different. Uh, in fact, it was literally, hey, we need somebody to be an undercover agent. We've got this thing going. Does anybody want to do it? And again, John, it comes back to Hollywood. I was a James Rockford fan, Rockford Files. I think that was the best training I had to be an undercover agent was just watching uh, James Garner as Jim Rockford lie his way through every situation. And uh, I recognized that God didn't give me a whole lot of gifts, but he gave me the gift of deceit. And I could be a pretty good liar when it came down to it. So we were working an art theft ring. Uh, we, we had an informant that was willing to introduce an undercover agent. And there were, there were two agents that were working this, my, myself and, and the lead agent. And the informant just pointed to me and he said, I could introduce him and you know, he could be my, my associate. I can, I can bring him into the ring. And I jumped at the opportunity. This was like, this was an answer to a dream come true. I had only been in the bureau about six months. Now you have to be in, I think, two or three years before you can even go to the undercover certification school. But I had been in less than six months. Uh, it was it was kind of helpful for me because I didn't have that FBI mentality. I didn't talk like an FBI agent. I still sort of talk maybe like a Marine, but more like a civilian. Uh, and and it worked out. It worked out well. So I had my very first meeting with with the target of our investigation. And I, I know most of your viewers have been pulled over by a cop. And you know how you get that adrenaline flowing through your body and you reach for your wallet and you're trying to pull your your license out and your hands are shaking and everything. Well, my knees were shaking and it wasn't fear. It was adrenaline. Huh. And my knees are just shaking and, and, and I'm going, God, don't let them see the knees because they're going to know something's wrong. Oh, I walked into this meeting. Uh, it was an innocuous meeting. We didn't talk about anything criminal as much as we just sort of as howdy, how do you do? You know, a little bit of background. Yeah, he this guy was sold, selling stolen paintings and I had some money and was willing to buy some stolen paintings. And we hit it off and he was a runner uh, and I was a marathon runner. So we kind of talked about running and we, we connected in this way. And I walked out of that meeting with such an adrenaline high hmm. that it, it was the, the most exciting time that adrenaline high. And I spent the rest of my career sort of like chasing that adrenaline dragon that, that wow. I had now. I'm chasing the dragon the rest of my career, trying to recreate that excitement. Um, and, and and did you, uh, on many of the times, did you recreate it? Or was it obviously the first time special in, in life in general? But um, did you all, you, did you find a way to at least come close to recreating it? Yeah, I did. But I, I found myself doing goofy things, trying to recreate it. I mean, huh. uh, just like, like I would see how far I could push the envelope without getting caught. I, I, I played music. I would have the bad guys in the car and I'm playing jailhouse rock, Folsom prison blues. Uh, I, I was just reading that preparing for this. That that's pretty wild. Yeah. I mean, it was, I, I, I would do anything that I could to try to 
to try to amp up the adrenaline to make it, you know, how, how far can I go? I actually had a, a prosecutor one time tell me that I got to knock it off because I was given clues in every meeting to, you know, and he said, you're making people look stupid. And I said, yeah, <laughs> you know, but it's kind of fun. I, I, one of my, one of my favorites was uh, I'm, I'm a country fan. So I, I, I love Charlie Daniels and he had a song called uneasy rider. And if, if anyone remembers the song, it's this long haired hippie goes into a redneck bar and gets challenged and ends up kicking uh, green teeth in the shins and the, the line in the song. And I've got it cued to the car. So I've got an international arms dealer getting into my undercover car six different times. He gets into the car and the first line you hear on every undercover tape is Charlie Daniels saying, don't you know what this man's a spy? He's an undercover agent for the FBI. And they, they never caught on. But uh, I just... Wow, I, you definitely like to push the edge, didn't you? That's for sure. Yeah. yeah so. Well, you know, uh, Bob, um, we're going to have to go... Obviously, you have so much, and one hour is never going to cover it. But um, before we get into the writing and you uh, pivoting and, and telling the stories in... Um, as an author, under in Undercover, what are some of the more uh, best parts of what you accomplished or cases that you really feel like you really did some really good work and, and you were able to uh, bring the bad guys at least to justice? What are some of those that, that you're the most proud of? Hey, one thing, to John, I want to apologize. I know people are sending some questions. I don't have my glasses on, so I'm probably not answering their questions. No, that's all right. I'm just sharing them so they're online because sometimes in the past I would answer questions, but then that, that deviates away from me having time with you. So unless I can find a way to get to it, I'd rather just keep going with you. Okay, okay, okay. Well, I, I think that the case that, that I, I guess you could say I'm most proud of, I mean, there, I had, I had some really great cases. I was, I was blessed. I mean, I, I always say that I never had a midlife crisis. I just became a different person. You know, if I got bored being Bob Hamer, the, the, the FBI agent, I became Bob Hamer, the contract killer or Bob Hamer, the uh, international arms dealer. But my most difficult case really wasn't my most dangerous case. I mean, I've been shot at, I've shot people, but I infiltrated a group called NAMBLA, the North American Man-Boy Love Association. And it was a group of men that are sexually attracted to little boys. Um, I, I got involved in that group. We ended up uh, convicting eight members of the group's inner circle. And I, I don't know what the status is now, but they filed affidavits against me saying that uh, I had violated their First Amendment rights of association. And now because of my infiltration, they weren't allowed to, to, to meet. But uh, clearly that was the, the case in which, I, I guess you could say as an actor, I extended myself uh, playing this person that was sexually attracted to, to little boys. Uh, that was the, the biggest stretch in my character. But it was... It was also sort of the most difficult case because if if the bad guy is hiring me to, to kill his wife or to kill his business associate, he really doesn't care whether I like the NFL or the ballet, whether I was uh, whether I'm rich or poor or, or whether, you know, what's my favorite movie. He just wants to make sure that I have the capability of of killing the person. Well, in this one. In NAMBLA, I realized that it was a completely different mindset than what I had. I mean, one of their favorite movies was Lord of the Flies. It's because it was a bunch of little boys running around in their underwear. Uh, one of the guys that we convicted was a dentist uh, living in Dallas, Texas. He, he used to send out the little mailers that you get. Uh, and his was, uh, he likes children and children like him. And he was a, uh, he did pediatric dental work. Um, but his, he had actually videotaped, DVR'd uh, a Sylvan learning commercial. Now, you and I might watch that commercial and say, oh, you know what? That's a good idea. My, 
my son or my granddaughter needs help with their homework. So I'll take them to Sylvan. Now, this guy, he did the commercial because he was in love with the little boy that was in the commercial and kept playing it over and over again. Mm-hmm. So as a NAMBLA member, I had to begin to think like them. And I would I had to, to look at, at everything through their eyes. Not I wasn't looking at through the eyes as a drug dealer. I wasn't looking at the eye through the eyes of a contract killer or an international arms dealer. I had to look, I had to have pedophile eyes looking, uh, looking at them through these eyes. We were in, uh, down in Florida and we were out. It was a beautiful night in Florida, Boca Raton. There were uh, beautiful women that were just walking up and down in, in bathing suits. And I couldn't look at them because I wasn't attracted to women. And then there's little boys that were running around with jerseys on or num- you know, numbers or colored shirts. And the guys I'm with, they're playing the dating game. And it's going, okay, who do you want? The one in the red shirt or the one in the, the blue stripe shirt? And so I had to, I had to pretend that that was my interest because that's, that's what they were. Uh, one of the first meetings I had with them back in New York and John, you're from New York. Uh, I don't know if the, if you'd ever gone to the Toys R Us down at, in Times Square, but yes, I have. we first met at Grand Central Station. This was my first meeting with the NAMBLA members. We were to meet at Grand Central Station. Uh, and then we were going to take a, a walking tour of downtown of, of Times Square. And I couldn't understand, but as we're getting closer to Times Square, these guys are getting excited. I mean, this was like you and I have tickets to the SC game and we're at the Coliseum. And now it's, you know, it's just getting close to game time and everybody's excited and rah, rah, and let's go Trojans and all this. And we walk into the Toys R Us and these guys literally ran to the railing of an indoor 60 foot Ferris wheel. And they are talking about, look at that kid in, in that seat. Look at the guy in the striped shirt. Look at that little boy. This is what I would do to him. This is what I want to do to that little kid. And they were saying stuff that had I not been undercover and I had walked past and heard him, I probably would have thrown him over the railing. But I, I, it was so eye-opening to think that these parents had brought their kids on a Friday evening just to have fun in New York City, in Times Square, at Toys R Us, and these these predators are out there at the railing talking about what they would like to do to these children. So when we eventually took down eight members of the center circle, uh, it, it was it was satisfying for me. I mean, we got a, a PhD psychologist that worked at two Chicago area hospitals. We got a dentist. We got three special ed teachers. We got an ordained minister. We got a a personal trainer, and we got a blue collar worker. So, I mean, it, it ran the socioeconomic gamut. Uh, the, at, at the Miami meeting, the, 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 the dentist flew there in his own airplane. I mean, that's, wow. and yet we had guys that were on welfare. Uh, so yeah. it, you couldn't, there was no box to check off to say, okay, if this guy is this, this, and this, we know that he's a, he's a predator. You know, and most people don't have have any real understanding of how how evil that is, but how prevalent it is. And you know, you had you got up close and personal and having to do it that way. I have some friends. I interviewed a friend who works with this group called Cert Ministries that has been around for many years now, rescuing children from sex traffickers. You know, and some of the work that they've done and he's done outside of even the U.S. going in and you know acting as a buyer who wants to buy children. You know, and hearing the stories personally, Bob, you know, him telling he has to play this role so he can bring these folks uh, down and, and free these children. But at the same time, you know, his instinct is like you said, he if he could, he would strangle these people in that instant. But he can't. He has to make believe he's a he's a buyer and he wants to buy the kids. And, you know, being able to keep that in check so that you succeed at your mission and your objective is very tough. And it takes a lot. And for you to have done that. I know it was um, it had to affect you on a daily basis because you had to come back and deal with that 
you know, knowing that you were playing that role to get that objective? Yeah, I mean, it, it was psychologically, it, it was my it was my most difficult case, uh, psychologically and emotionally. Right. But not from a, a sheer physical danger. Sure. I certainly was in, in, in uh, worse situations than that. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to pivot a little bit because we're getting um, time is, is rolling. You know, so you 25 years in the FBI. And then when you come out, you choose to start writing and you write both fiction and nonfiction. And you co-author a bunch of books, and I read through some of the credits. But we'll stay with the the last on the cover now, and, and that book. What got you to write it? How did you uh, pivot from being an undercover agent to a writer? And then in that, I'd love to talk about the the arms dealing a story with the North Koreans because I think that's definitely Hollywood movie uh, material for sure. But just some of that material. How did you go from you come out, you you serve honorably, you finish up, you're in the now you're you you pivot again, and now you pivot to Hollywood, where obviously had a big part of your life growing up. Um, so tell us about that. Yeah, I I really had no desire to write. It wasn't like oh, throughout my whole FBI career, I can't wait to retire and, and write the, the ultimate fiction book. But the Namble experience, it, I I needed to tell that experience, and it was it was as much to get out this whole NAMBLA organization, the boy lover agenda. Uh, and for me, it was cathartic to, to be able to put, put it down on paper. Ironically, I, uh, I was fortunate at a Christmas party, my brother's Christmas party, I met uh, an agent and uh, my brother just said, Hey, you should, you should meet this agent and told the agent, you should, you should talk to uh, my brother. He's had some interesting stories in the FBI and we were just talking and this literary agent said, Oh, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I said, no, not really. But if I did, it would be about this NAMBLA investigation. He said, well, well, why don't you do it? You know, start writing and get back to me in a couple months. And so within about four months, I, I had the, the book complete and gave it to him. He, he said, oh, this is going to sell right away. We're going to have a, a bidding war. Well, we got 24 rejections pretty quickly and saying we don't want to touch this subject. Uh, the writing's good, but we don't we don't want to touch this subject. If you throw in some more undercover cases, you we would consider publishing. And I really I didn't want to. I, I wasn't pounding my chest saying, hey, look at me. I'm cool. I'm an undercover agent. But I, again, it came down to if you want to get this message out, you're going to have to make it more palatable to the reader. So I ended up putting in a dozen more undercover cases, the contract killings, the drug dealing, some of those things. And then two publishers that had previously rejected it, read it the second time and said, OK, now with these other stories in, we, we like this. So uh, that's how we got the. The, the first book published and, uh, and, and, and that one was the last on the cover. That was the last undercover. Right. right. Yeah. So, and, and, and I was, I was really fortunate. I got to tell you, um, I, I, I hope the, the book is well-written, but I deserve an award for the blurbs because I had uh, my, my, the publisher said, look, we're going to publish your book, but you have to have famous people write something nice about the book. And it was like, everybody I know that's famous, I put in jail and they don't have anything nice to say about me. And so I, I started thinking and I, I reached out to Michael Connolly, Michael Connolly, best-selling author. I thought he lived in Los Angeles because Harry Bosch is set in Los Angeles. Everything he writes is set in Los Angeles. Turns out he lived in Florida. He'd been in LA before. But I, I got a hold of him through, I think, through his fan club. He read the book, uh, wrote a very nice blurb about the book. Uh, Vince Flynn, one of my favorites. I don't know if, if any of your uh, viewers watched Vin, or read any of Vince Flynn's book. The nicest compliment any agent ever gave me was he said, I was an old, ugly, domestic Mitch Rapp. And Mitch Rapp is a CIA contract killer. And I said, look, I'll I'll take that. Um, Mitch Rapp is that that's a great uh, 
compliment and I will accept that. Well, Vince Flynn wrote a very nice one. And then uh, Ollie North, my publisher, we were trying to figure out who I knew that was famous and I didn't know anyone. I said, look, you're Ollie North's editor. I was a Marine. He's a Marine. Maybe he'll say something nice. And he ended up writing a very nice blurb. Well, then he started a, uh, a publishing imprint called Fidelis and contacted the editor and said, does Bob write any fiction? And cause we're trying to put together a, some men's fiction books. So it was like, yeah, okay. I'll, if Ollie North wants it, I'll write fiction. So I wrote a couple books that he, his publishing house published. And now I've been really blessed because I've written three books with Ollie North. So I, I wrote a, a book called American Heroes on the Home Front, which is about the, the wounded guys that I've met. Uh, once my first book came out, The Last Undercover, I went down to Balboa Hospital the Navy hospital in San Diego and would go into the rooms and meet these guys who had just come back from Iraq and Afghanistan and giving out books. And then we, we wrote this book, American heroes on the home front. And then I've written two novels for Ollie. Our next novel comes out in August called a giant awakes. And gee, it's about an undercover FBI agent. I don't know where, <laughs> how we ever came up with that idea, but uh, he's targeting a, a, a Chinese spy that's operating out of Los Angeles. Well, you know, uh, you talk about your faith and when you pray, I always say nowadays that God had a bigger plan for me. And he also has a sense of humor because, you know, when I look at my life, the fact that I'm, I'm sitting here uh, interviewing you and talking about your experience in the FBI. I mean, when I was 15 years old, I wanted to be an FBI agent. Like I said, I was in the South Bronx, dropped out of high school, went down the other path. And I, you may have known some of my, my life, but I became a communist Maoist leader, and um, my connection to the FBI was later. I through the Freedom of Information Act, I have my <laughs> FBI file, so I got an FBI file on me. Yeah. Uh, it's a little different than your experience, but eventually I pivoted from that side to the other side, and um, you know became who I am today, and went on that journey. And so you know, I just like I said, God had a bigger plan, and He took me in the right direction, and. Um, it was an interest. And then I, you know, got reconnected to a friend of mine who just went through a training with the FBI, like as a civilian FBI person. So it's it's fascinating how life takes you on a, a journey if you follow, you know, what what you're supposed to be doing. Um, and well, John, so the reason I met you, I mean, I we can share it now. I mean, the FBI, we were targeting you. And so they just <laughs> they just sent me in to to yeah, sidle up well, to you. You know, when I led, when I was like, I think 18 years old, I led a demonstration in, in, in Manhattan and I was a high school dropout and I'm leading this demonstration and we're marching and everything. And this, at that time they had a red squad and this uh, detective comes up to me and says, Hey, John Duffy, you know, I just want you to know, we know who you are and we're, we're watching you. And that freaked the hell out of me, man. I was like, did not 18 year old kid. I was like, Whoa, you know, I did not know that I was on anybody's radar. I just yeah. figured I was a kid from the ghetto. Why would anybody be looking at me? But Kind of uh, scared straight, huh? <laughs> well, it didn't scare me straight, but it kind of put a little bit of a thing in my mind going, huh? Um, and it went on from there. But anyway, you know, back to your story, you know, you, you, you did all these series of books. Uh, you got another book coming out. What else is uh, coming up for you? What what's some, and you do some speaking. I mean, that's like I said, I went to that time that you spoke to that strange group, but, um, you know, you, you do speak and you share some of your stories and, and I take it that you'll do more of that in the future. Uh, is that correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, COVID put a kibosh on a lot of these speaking uh, engagements for a couple of years. But, uh, yeah, I've I've been able I've been fortunate to speak to law enforcement groups, to civilian groups, to the church groups, to parents groups. Uh, so it's. I've, I've shared my experiences and I incorporate my undercover stories. If, if I talk to a business group, a leadership group, I, I talk about leadership, but incorporate uh, my undercover stories. If I, if I talk to church groups or I, I usually incorporate the whole idea. I was in the middle and I won't share the story because we don't have enough time, but it's in the book, you know, buy my book and you'll, yes, please buy it. I'm in the middle of a half million dollar heroin deal at the LAX Hilton hotel when a couple that I lived with 10 years earlier, uh, 
walked in to the lobby of the hotel, just as the bad guy said, uh, my partner's in the lobby. He's got a gun. If anything goes wrong, you're the first person we're going to kill. So uh, fortunately, she had prayed. And when the, the pilot said we're about to land in L.A., she, she just prayed. She said, you know, God, I hope you'll watch over Bob and protect him because I know he does some dangerous things because he's an FBI agent. And you wouldn't believe this if, if someone because of your Hollywood experience, if you saw this in a movie, you wouldn't believe it. If, if, you know, you think, wait, you can't do coincidence to advance the plot. Well, this was a coincidence. They had walked into the lobby just after I had flashed a half million dollars. And fortunately the, the woman saw this and saw me. And I kind of gave her this look that this is not the time for grips and grins. And she and her husband walked off in the opposite direction Within a few minutes, two kilos of China white heroin showed up and we arrested three international heroin traffickers. But wow. uh, it was uh, it was a close call. I was I was wearing a microphone right here and literally you could hear my chest thumping when she walks in when she walks into the lobby. <laughs> well, you got I'm going to put up on the screen right now. These are just uh, some of your books, the last undercover Born on the 5th of July, Detour to Justice, and The Giant Awakes. Giant Awakes is, um, and then you have another one coming out. Uh, uh, the Giant Awakes is a new one. That's the That's new the Ollie North book that comes out August 10th. Okay, excellent. So, the, um, But yeah, but all the books are on Amazon. Anybody yes. watching this, you know, uh, both the, the nonfiction, which is a great book, which takes you behind the scenes, but also the fiction, if you like good fiction, uh, you'll enjoy his books. Go on Amazon, buy the books, and you'll get a, a deeper understanding of uh, both Bob and also his writing and his ability to tell stories. So by all means, please do that. Um, of all those, is there any moment that you felt you were the closest to death's door uh, in, in any other undercover thing where you came close, besides the one that you just shared there where that could have went south right away? But uh, outside of that, any other times? Well, I, I was involved in you know, I've shot a couple people in drug deals that that didn't go didn't go right. But uh, I mean, I, I I've had some close calls. It's it's you can slip up pretty pretty easily, pretty quickly, and uh, you just have to be. And I and I think that's the one thing. One of the toughest things in undercover work is is not lying too much. I mean, you keep the lies. It's kind of like what's going on today with so many of these conspiracy theories. You you throw in some truths and then people start to believe the truth. And then you, you take it in this other direction and they believe that because they've already been they've already been taken down that that path with the truth. So it's very similar to undercover work. So you you maintain as few lies as possible. But there have been times when I've been pretty close to being caught in my lie and and had to had to backpedal pretty quickly I, I do tell the story in the book i was undercover six months at, at santa anita in hollywood park with a, a group of gamblers that were fixing the horse rages and they all had nicknames uh, jimmy the mouth jimmy the greek joe the broom david the printer my nickname was bob the cop and bob the, bob the cop really bob the cop yeah and at one time uh, it, it's a long story, but but in essence, this group had been together for 10 years, five years, 10 years. You know, they knew each other. And now I came in to the group. I started I they identified who the people were and I started sidling up and talking to him. Well, this one guy had been out for knee surgery and he came back and he said, wait, who's this guy? And he said, oh, that's Bob. He works for a sports agent down in Boca Raton, Florida. And. Uh, he scouts professional baseball or college and high school baseball players, which our son was a re really good baseball player. So I, and I played ball in college. So I kind of knew how that game was played. And that was my backstory. Well, they said, well, how do you know he's not a cop? So it kind of, this was Bob, the guy Renee thinks is a cop. And then it just got shortened to Bob the cop. So it was, it was, <laughs> now Bob curious, you know, having come out of doing all that uh, character work as undercover, then coming into Hollywood as a consultant on films and on TV shows and stuff like that. Did it ever cross your mind that maybe you should act? 
Was that even a, oh. a thought? Because I'm going, this, you know. This, this is true. I, I'm a great liar, but I can't memorize. I, uh, if, if you force me to sing a song right now, I, I, I probably have heard this, the national anthem a thousand times, and I'm not sure I can sing it unless I'm singing along with someone. So I've tried the acting, uh, and I, I can't memorize a line. So that, um, that just I, wasn't I'm, I'm pretty good on my feet, and I'm extemporaneous, but when it comes to memorizing, I'm not very good. That's not, that wasn't your path in life. Well, yeah. you've, you've accomplished a much, much more. I'm not sure you needed acting, quite frankly. You, 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 <laughs> did, you did much better than, than uh, being an actor in all the, the endeavors that you've had in life. So um, just to finish up, any message you would have to people about life, the things that you learned in the Marine Corps, in the FBI, in, in your writing, in your speaking, you know, what's kind of the message? We started the show with Live Courageously. What are the message you people could take away from your life and what you would tell people as to how they could live a better life? You know, I, I'm not going to say this is how to live a better life. I, I worry now about the direction that this society is going. And particularly when we, we talk about uh, children and how I, I feel as if we are destroying our children's childhood. And we're not allowing them to be children. And, mm. and you have people that want to legitimize pedophilia. There's, there's a movement within the psychological community to normalize pedophilia. And I, when I talk to parents groups, I, 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 I think in terms of acronyms. The Marine Corps taught me to think in terms of acronyms. And, and I, I want to give, leave your viewers with this acronym, ACT. And affirm, communicate, and trust. And children that are affirmed, that they believe that they are loved by their parents, that they are valued by, by their parents, by their family, by God, those children are less likely to fall prey to a predator. Because these predators, they target the child that is seeking the father figure. These predators target the child that, that needs an adult in their life. So if you affirm your child and they feel valuable, it's less likely they're going to go down that path. C is communicate. You need to communicate with your children. Let them know that they can talk to you, that you will talk to them. You don't just shun them off to a room. Uh, you don't listen to them. You don't tell them they're stupid. You listen to them. You, you allow them that they can talk to you about anything that they're feeling. And you're not going to you're going to take it as important. Uh, we used to play a game at our table, we, at the dining room table, I spy. And, you know, sometimes a kid would say, oh, I almost saw a cat get hit by a car. Well, he talked. We allowed, we allowed our son to talk at the table. We allowed our daughter to talk at the table. And we had this open communication because one of the tricks they do is this is our secret. You know, you don't, if you tell your mommy or daddy what we're doing, we're both going to get in trouble. So, this is our secret. So as a parent, you don't have secrets and you communicate and then trust. And Ronald Reagan, when he was talking about the Soviets, he said, trust, but verify. But as a parent, I want you to trust, trust that inner feeling that, you know, when something isn't right, you know, when maybe somebody is, is saying the wrong thing or looking at your child in a way that, uh, that many of us, uh, you know it's wrong, but you can't really put a pinpoint on it. So trust your gut, but also trust your child's feeling. I mean, he may not want to talk, sit on Uncle Charlie's lap, and it may be because Uncle Charlie's got bad breath, but it really could be because Uncle Charlie has done something inappropriate, and your child can't can't articulate what that is. So. Trust your instincts and trust your child's instincts. So act, affirm, communicate, and trust. Because if you don't act, I guarantee you there are predators out there that will. Well, that's a power. I, I think that kind of really leaves people with a powerful message and, and a message that for our time even more, because it is more of a, a danger now than ever before. So what you're, what you're suggesting, uh, a friend of mine just put on the thing uh, to your last thing. I'm going to read this one. He said, uh, 
Ted Shred said, Bob's performance makes a difference for many, not to entertain an academy of nonsense. And I think, you know, your performance as what you've done in the real world to help people and with your message right now, I think is something for parents, especially is a message they got to hear because predators are increasing and because of social media and the Internet and a bunch of other reasons that if you I think that message of act, um, affirm, communicate and trust is a powerful message for parents. So, Bob, thank you. I, I'd love to do it again. I, I, there's so much more I could talk to you about and have you share because you, you know, you've lived a uh, colorful but also a very effective life. So I thank you. I thank you so much for taking your time to come on here. When your book comes out and is officially there, please uh, let me know so I can share it uh, with okay. you and uh, tell people to check it out. But check out all his books. It's easy on Amazon. Um, go there. And if you're a nonfiction person, get the nonfiction. If you're a fiction person, get the fiction. Or maybe just do both. So that just way. Buy them all. Buy them all. Why not? You know, you'll, you'll expand your, your repertoire that way. You'll learn some stuff. So. Hey, Bob, it, it was an honor. Thanks, John. Thank you so much uh, for what you've done in life. And uh, I'm uh, honored to know you and, and um, you have a great week. And we'll Thanks talk for having you. me on the show. Appreciate it, John. You got it. Take care. All right. Um, let me just uh, finish up the show. So that was a, um, a pretty you know, amazing interview with somebody who's lived a very courageous life, who's done a lot who's followed his fate, who's followed his uh, instincts and uh, summed it up on a real powerful note for parents and dealing with what's going on nowadays in social media. So anyway, the, the message of the show is live courageously, have faith over fear. There's now nine shows that you can watch on my YouTube Live Courageously channel. Please check them out. I got probably another 50 to 60 friends that I'll be interviewing over the next year and a year and a half. Um, I did not expect this to grow the way when I first thought of it, I was like, okay, I'll do maybe 12. Now I'm like, I don't, I, I just have too many amazing people. And Bob is one of those people who is uh, been a servant uh, of the people by what he's done in the military, what he's done as an FBI agent and what he's continuing to do with his speaking and with his writing. So um, honored to know him. Thank you everybody who's watched this live and everybody who will watch it on replay uh, have a great day and uh, see you next Sunday at 12 o'clock when I have my next guest. Uh, God bless.